Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with chef, restaurateur, journalist and award-winning writer, Ravinda Bogle. He never got over the wonder of how benevolent the earth was. And for someone who'd come from so little, someone who had the scars of, you know, really deeply hard times, he never got over that gratitude. Her latest book, Comfort and Joy, Irresistible Pleasures from a Vegetarian Kitchen, celebrates her grandfather and the life that he built, ground up for her family in Nairobi. Her writing is surely some of the best in Britain today. And with the stunning photography, it's deeply seductive. This is a game changer in vegetarian cookbooks. I began by asking her if the many essays in the book are poetic meditations on where we are now with an increasingly plant-focused food culture. I guess it is that. It's it's a love letter to my grandfather, um, to vegetables, to the joyful abundance of vegetables in the vegetable kingdom. Um, So it's thoughts, essays, meditations, I guess. Yes, absolutely. You talk a lot about poetry and we'll go into that in your first food moment, which is all about your grandfather. But meditation is a for me, it's about slowing down and it's about observation and it's about really taking the time, I suppose, to taste, to savour. Is that the intention from you as the writer? I think that's what vegetables do. I think that, um, you know, for so long, vegetables have been sort of the, the sideshow and that is changing but the culture I come from, vegetables have always been the whole meal. And I think now people are learning to really connect with their ingredients and with vegetables, you know, with meat, if you're buying an expensive piece of meat, you kind of don't rush it. You really take your time. You lavish time, attention, um, skill onto that piece of meat. Um, and this book says you can do the same with vegetables. If you really want them to sing with flavor, take your time with them, pay attention to them, be present to them. And I think for me, what's always been important and something that I've learned from my grandfather is to be present to that invisible humanity who planted that seed, who, um, you know, who watered it, who watched it grow, who picked it, who bought it to cargo. You know, there is always someone invisible sitting with you when you eat your meal. And I think vegetables connect you to that person more so than anything else I feel absolutely it is about really understanding where stuff comes from and I'm always banging on about that in in cooking the books I do honestly think it is the way to save the planet and I do want to talk a little bit about before we go into your four food moments about your commitment to sustainability you know you are seen as one of the most influential women in the UK um, largely because of your commitment to a sustainable approach to food tell us about what you did with your lockdown Sure. I mean, I think so it began with uh, this kind of disbelief, like everybody else, this dystopian moment that the world world was facing. And for us, particularly as people, you know, in restaurants, hospitality is so all consuming. And I got married and opened the restaurant within a few months of each other. And I didn't really even have time to notice I had a husband. And, um, and then suddenly we locked down and I was like, oh, uh, I have, 
a husband and a house and and oh wow there's a there's a park near my house so that was the first sort of two weeks of sort of slowing down and trying to work out how the hell my business was going to survive and navigating that and we actually closed before the government mandated um closure because our bookings had just taken such a nosedive because Boris very helpfully had just said avoid restaurants without you know a plan um and and so yeah for two weeks we were at home and then like so many amazing people in my industry it makes me so proud we decided we had a perfectly good kitchen and we should put it to 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 use and i have a re- very dear friend who is a, a doctor at king's college hospital and listening to what him and his wife were going through and you know what he was facing every single day i just knew that i had to help and i decided to start cooking for king's college hospital and at, at that time we couldn't have our teams in so it was just nadim and i going in he'd wash up i'd cook we were cooking 60 meals a day packing them up and i remember remarking to him that all people needed at that moment was comfort and joy and actually even for me the 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 the, the sort of process of being in the kitchen was really comforting in this time where there was just so much going on so much darkness in the world to be able to just slow down cook and just me in the kitchen with him was just a really it it gave me some sort of comfort as well and i remember saying to him you know hospitals are just such international communities yet you go to the canteen and all you get is you know a sandwich or fish and chips or and i want to cook vegetarian meals that you know for for all these people who are spending so much time so many hours away from their loved ones from a sense of home i want to give them a taste of home i want to give them comfort and joy and that's kind of what it was and then we launched uh, a, few, a few weeks after that we launched a delivery service a home delivery service called comfort and joy which was vegetarian meal boxes and they were really really popular and for for me it was really important that we took our time to do right so it was about supporting and buying from uh farmers who'd been really hit and it was about doing packaging that was 100% um home compostable so we were the first really to really look at our packaging because where i was just like there's enough crap going on in the world we don't want to add to it and um it was really lovely and i remember talking to jay rainer and he said do you know this is the first takeaway i've eaten where i haven't felt guilty or like crap afterwards it feels actually really comforting and so i felt this this was doing exactly what it said on the tin it was giving people comfort and joy and uh and that's kind of where this this idea started and um and then as we came out of the pandemic Nadim and I both decided that you know we'd been sort of meditating on this idea of how do you make a commercial business good and positive how can every single pound that is spent in our business be somehow doing some good whether that's by uplifting our suppliers or our team members um or our community or the world around us so we decided to um explore the carbon neutral you know line 
And we have since, this is our second year as a carbon neutral certified business and something we're very proud of. Fantastic. I mean, it's such a fantastic story, isn't it? I mean, that's why the Evening Standard called you one of the most influential women in food, particularly leading progress and diversity in London. Um, and that's as well as Giacconi hitting the 56th best restaurant in the UK in the National Restaurant Awards only seven months after opening. And it was the very first independent restaurant in the UK to go carbon neutral. I mean, that is a hell of a thing to do, isn't it? Because, of course, then everyone... Well, not everyone copies, but we want everyone to copy and you've set up a template. We really hoped that we'd kick the ball forward and it was just really wonderful to have, you know, other restaurateurs or people calling us up and saying, how did you do it? Because it's not easy for small businesses. Hospitality, you can barely keep your head above water most times, particularly now after the pandemic. So to be able to take that time to do it, I mean, it's difficult. It's not easy um, to to get that certification. It takes a lot of work, organisation, form filling, um, you know, all of that. But, you know, it's If we can do it as a small independent business, then I think the larger businesses should absolutely be doing it. You know, we we should all be doing our bit. And for me, it was very much uh, about coming from a country where and growing up, seeing all these rural farming communities who have the lowest carbon footprint in the world, yet they're the ones who are paying the price for our greedy consumption. And that bothers me. That really is painful for me. And so we've really strongly felt like we wanted to do our bit. And the the, uh, lockdown and the pandemic, while, you know, it was awful, it gave us time to really reflect on our business because we'd just been going full pelter for, you know, four years, three years even. And so we, we were like, right, carbon neutral, healthcare for every single member of our team, looking at our supply chain, really identifying the people we want to work with, empowering them, um, building a relationship with a wonderful biodynamic farm called Waltham Place, which is 50 minutes down the road from us. All these things, all these measures that we put in, and we feel that we have come out of the pandemic um, bruised, but a stronger business. Absolutely. It's a really, really wonderful and very, very inspiring story. The spirit of all that is summed up, I think, in your book. It's beautifully done. Beauty is your signature, really, isn't it? I just love the photographs. I mean, do a shout out to the photographer. Oh, Kristen Perez. Tell us about some of the styling. It's just stunning, isn't it? I mean, you know, I come from a very visual background. I worked on magazines in fashion and beauty and I'd, I'd sli- styled and art directed shoots. And I, you know, started bo- buying um, things like Vogue and collecting photography books when I was about 14. It was what I really loved. Photography really spoke to me as a language uh, early on. And, um, you know, I would cut out tears. And recently, in fact, I met Lucinda Chambers, who's the ex um, fashion director of Vogue. She came to eat at the restaurant and I just said to her, my God, you had such an influence on my work. I used to cut out, you know, your shoots and put them in a file and create mood boards with them. In fact, when I did my first book, so many of my pictures on my mood book had uh, 
mood board had come from your your uh, shoots and I started describing some of the shoots to her and I think she was just like sort of slightly aghast that I could remember all these things going back to the 1990s and 2000s. Um, but Kristen Perez, the photographer, and actually the whole team, Tabitha Hawkins, Joss Hurd, we worked together on the Giacconi book as well. And I just love them. There's such a, a, an incredible sense of support on those shoots, um, collaboration, women doing things together and getting shit done. That's kind of their attitude. They are just the most incredible women. And, you know, I produced a mood board and I was like, this is kind of the line I want to go down with, with these openers and this kind of sense of humor and not taking ourselves too seriously and a kink and a wink. And, you know, for Kristen to translate that so beautifully, I mean, she firstly, she's just an architect of light. The way she sees the world is just so beautiful. She sees such wonder in everything. And Tabitha Hawkins, again, just kind of this would bring this fragile magic to to set every single day and, you know, do things like cycle pedaling a glass, you know, trifle bowl on her on her bicycle because it's the one I wanted. Or and Joss, you know, just being able to do, you know, nine recipes a day, prepare them, talk to me about how I wanted them to look and just she instinctively knows how I want things to look. She's yeah. just such a good translator of, of the silences in in the things I don't see. She just makes it happen. So, I mean, my, my days spent at the Flower Factory studio, Kristen's studio, were just some of the happiest days I had, um, you know, in recent I times. I bet because, you know, let when we go into your first food moment now, because it'll take you right back to that little Ravinda playing in her grandfather's Shambhala, the allotment. But actually, somehow that is translated in the photography in the book. It's a dream. Yeah. It's, it's a fantasy, but it's based in reality. Take us for a moment back to that Shambhala. Oh, I mean, I think possibly the happiest moments of my life. The moments that have informed me as a human being come from that shamba. And really, this story is about my grandfather and this kind of exemplary man that he was and his spirit and how much that has had to do with everything I have ever done was so much about his philosophy about life. So he came to Kenya from India in the 1940s with really nothing. And he tried to do that trip, I think, before. So they sailed for something like 26 days. Something went wrong with the ship. And, you know, this is not an easy journey. People were starving to death, you know, deaths happening on board, all of that. Very inexperienced men all looking for a better life somewhere else, um, you know, far away from the provinces of Punjab, this very provincial life that he'd led. And this real kind of pioneer taking a voyage in the dark. And he made that trip then after those, you know, after the first one failed again by himself and landed in in Kenya. And just despite, you know, language barriers, despite the fact that, that then Kenya was this um, still a British colony, 
Um, so there was a lot of kind of divide and rule and solitude and being away from home and all the things he knew. He still find, found time to fall deeply in love with this really benevolent soil that just seemed to give and give. And he bought a plot of land and he never got over the wonder of how benevolent the earth was. And for someone who'd come from so little, someone who had the scars of, you know, really deeply hard times, he never got over that gratitude. And I still remember how thankful he was, how he shared everything that he grew, whether it was with the local orphanage or with eye camps or with friends, neighbors, strangers, um, the joy he had in eating and this incredible vision that that vegetables were a sort of miracle because they had withstood pests, blight, bad weather, and yet they still come to our table, to our kitchens. We can cook with them and we can share what we cook with them. And that was for him a miracle. And he never stopped being grateful for that. And that has had a huge impact on how I see the world. Yeah. And let me just read from your first food moment about that moment he'd smile broadly as he pulled out onions from the earth and held them close as though they were precious nuggets of gold his weather-worn face protruded from under the white cloud of his turban his forehead marked with the deep crevices of determination wisdom behind the twitching curtains of his eyelashes how beautiful i mean you know the way that you perceive the most mundane and i remember carolyn Steele talking about that word mundane and actually it means everything it means the world yeah it doesn't it means what's under your nose but that also means the world and it is those tiny little observations i absolutely love one thing that i picked up and that you didn't mention in your food moments that you sent to me was your relationship with your mother yes but you call it a strange mute love (sighs) you say that she was an exceptional cook and often invited to cook at weddings but she was stern and had a temper yes i wonder if your second food moment has anything to do with that difficult, tense relationship that you might have had with her, because it is ultimately about control around food, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my mother was incredibly controlling about what we ate and, you know, her whole sense of self. Now, here was a girl who'd lost her own mother when she was two, um, didn't know really a mother's love. Her father was very consumed with what happened afterwards because he remarried and then went on to have six sons and she came from a place where men were valued much above women so she wasn't given an education and by the age of 16 she was married off um had her first child while she was still a child at 17 um and had this very difficult relationship with her mother-in-law because who'd become her new mother in a way um And her entire sense of self came from cooking and cleaning and keeping a house, basically. And she had these very Victorian attitudes about what girls, what our parameters should be. And she always said to me, you have to learn to cook. You know, you will cook for your husband and children and you will provide for them like I provide for you. And your whole sense of self, really. She never really, you know, she couldn't read or write, so she never 
encouraged me to she never sat and studied with me for example or read me bedtime stories it was always about being in the kitchen and doing so very early on she sort of you know pulled me off my tricycle because we also lived in this very extended family you know uh, grandparents uncles aunts anyone who happened to be visiting from abroad would stay with us and um so there were always many mouths to feed so from the age of 5 i really was in a kitchen um you know at that time being very resentful because i think my inner feminist knew it was wrong that the boys were outside playing while the girls were all inside working um but also there was wonder in those moments you know there was this incredible magic happening of women talking and um you know instinctively knowing what to put into pots and pans and taming wild flavors in their kind of delicate hands and and i learned so much from her but that relationship wasn't an easy one because she was a taskmaster she was a perfectionist and even now i think she finds it very difficult to abdicate and to say okay my daughters are doing it now you know mm-hmm. um my daughter has a business that that cooks for so many people and people love her food she finds it very difficult because her, that was her that's her sense of self mm-hmm. is that she's an excellent cook and really i feel very deeply and strongly that I am standing on the shoulders of women like my mother. I am here because they were there. And that this platform of Jaconi and everything I do really should have belonged to them. But it was too early. They didn't have those opportunities and I don't take it for granted. I do not take it lightly that I am doing what I'm doing because of those women, because of their wisdom. Yeah, I I feel the same way about my mother. She she could, could have had a very different life if she'd been born a, a little bit later. But I was interested in the control around food in your second food moment. You describe your relationship with carbs in your early 20s. <laughs> and I wonder if that had a, anything to do with that rather difficult sort of very food-centric relationship with your mother that that you felt so resentful about. Tell us about your relationship with carbs perhaps within the prism of that relationship. Yeah, I think you know the politics of food, uh, you know, especially in the kind of household I was brought up in, women always ate last, for example, the men always ate first. And women were the afterthought, it was the leftovers or, you know, whatever, you ate second. So I think even just that, you know, was like and then you had to be ladylike in your appetite. So, you know, you ate just enough. You never overate or you never indulged or were seen to want anything it was like your needs were second that really i'm mean, that's how i was brought up i i i you know i'm i'm not you know from a generation that far far away you know it's just like i sometimes find it difficult to believe that or difficult to to think cuz i i know people of my age who weren't brought up in families like that but my mother had her first child at 17 and there's a 16 year age gap between me and my eldest sister so you know the rules for them were the same as the rules for me even though i came many generations later um but yeah so this this baking breaking bread chapter was um it came at a time when i suddenly had this this free newfound freedom i was at university 
Um, it's the first time I'd lived away from home. Uh, I'd grown up in a very strict Orthodox household where, you know, you didn't have boyfriends and you certainly didn't go to discos and you, you know, kind of didn't, you, there was a very fine line about what was permissible and what wasn't. And university just opened my eyes to this whole new world. I had autonomy for the first time. I could make decisions for myself and I sort of went wild and I remember being approached by uh, an Asian wedding magazine and they said, oh, would you like to be a model? And wow, I mean, this really spoke to me because I'd grown up on fashion magazines. And um, and actually, I, I remember at that time, not for it not being such a vain decision, but I really wanted to learn the the mechanics of how a shoot worked, even back then. Um, but yeah, I remember being on the shoot and being tiny, I mean, wayfish, sort of, you know, five foot six tall and about seven stones, which is very thin. And the photographer <laughs> casually commenting to the makeup artist that I was photographically fat and I overheard him. And this was at the height of the Atkins diet. And suddenly I remember going home and just feeling so awful and being so angry with my body because I felt it let me down. And suddenly, because of all this talk about Atkins diet and all these celebrities on it, and, you know, this was that time when magazines were all about celebrity and, you know, um, that kind of, um, what was that look called? You know, Kate Moss being really, really super thin. Heroin chic. Heroin chic, that's it. So that was that time. And suddenly I just didn't feel thin enough and carbs became the enemy, particularly bread. And, you know, bread had always been a very normal part of my life. I think I've called it the kind of everyday circular dream of life. You know, you ate rotis or you ate chapatis or parathas or it was just every like that was just normal. And I'd had a very healthy relationship with food. I'd never dieted. I'd never stopped myself eating anything. And then suddenly there I was obsessing over bread, but avoiding it and torturing myself by going into bakeries. And I live near Finsbury Park and going into these bagel shops and sniffing the bread and torturing myself by not allowing myself to eat it. And just this went on for years and this really bad relationship with food and then it was when I was at journalism college that I was sent off to do this um, assignment and I found myself in this house a, a refuge for women um, from many different places many different backgrounds and they were all cooking together so they were all these stews and curries kind of bubbling everything smelled so good but what they all had in common is that they were all making some sort of bread, whether it was leavened, unleavened. There were so many. It was like this language, multitude of like languages through bread. And, you know, just seeing all these women who had just come from the most horrific circumstances, all connecting over bread and breaking bread together was such a moment for me. And in particular, this one woman who said to me, in my language, we have the same word for bread and life because bread is life and there is no life without bread in it. And when you think about bread, it's these very simple ingredients that swell to give you something that is larger than the sum of its parts. And it's so generous 
and it's a miracle. And I just snapped out of that moment, out of that denial. And I remember piling my plate up with all these different breads and just eating and feeling happy, like I hadn't felt for so long and being, I'm feeling full. (laughs) You know, I'd been walking around hollow and just enjoying the taste of bread and I haven't stopped and I just love bread and I eat bread every single day. Um, and it's such a joy for me. And even the, you know, baking bread is, is such a moment because it's a moment you can really be present and slow down and really enjoy the process. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's full of, full of life as well as full of nourishment. It's, and this is what the book is all about. Your third food moment brings that together again. It's about, you know, how vegetables can heal the planet and the body and the soul. Um, and you talk about it in terms of, of, of your Super Bowl. Uh, chapter. Um, tell us about what soups and dals in particular did for you when you came from Kenya as a very small child to a very cold England. I mean, I think an empty soup bowl is just a, a it's a moment of hope, isn't it? Because you you're just you you can fill that with so many different things. And 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 for me, um, you know, I think one of my first memories really of food is, um, and I said this in my last book, was dal. You know, this pressure cooker, you know, precariously balanced on this old stove. These kind of puffs of steam, you know, exhalations of steam every now and then. And just the sound of it and the smell of it and the steam in the kitchen from the pressure cooker, the dal cooking. It's like it's breathing. It's breathing. And for me, it's just pure comfort and joy. You know, a bowl of dal or soup um, for me connects me to my mother, to home. And so when we came to this country, we lived in in this sort of very ramshackle flat above a shop that had no central heating. Um, there were just gas stoves everywhere. And I, I think it was actually the gas that I just made me so ill. Um, I think I still suffer from asthma because of that, you know, being exposed to that kind of carbon monoxide through my childhood. And I was just always sick. I always, and it was the weather as well. I'd come from this very lush tropical heat. And then suddenly England was a really cold place and it, particularly in a flat that doesn't have any heating, um, you know, no washing machines and damp, you know, clothes drying every, it was pretty grim. And um, those moments of illness, every cloud is a silver lining. And for me, that, silver lining was the attention I got from my mother who was so consumed in trying to set up home and navigate it must be have been so terrifying for her she didn't speak English Um, my father was often absent um, to try and look after you know four children and set up home and and housework and never-ending tasks and she was just so consumed in all of that and then when I was sick, you know, those were the moments she would bring a glass of Lucasade to my bed and a bowl of kitchdi or um, dal or soup. And she would sit with me as I ate it, you know, balancing it on my knees in, in bed. And it was that moment, you know, mother and daughter across from each other, a soup bowl between us. And we would talk and often we would talk about home and everything that we'd left behind. And 
those were such precious moments for me because they helped me navigate my homesickness. And that's a beautiful meditation on mother and daughter love. Um, you know, and you do talk about your various sort of moments with your mother throughout the book. Your fourth food moment is the other kind of love. And it's just so, I mean, this it goes from comfort to pure joy. And I'm sure you have a comfort as well with your husband. But this is pure joy. Tell us about the object of my confection. <laughs> my husband, yes. So, I mean, gosh, I think I had almost given up on love when I met my husband. I was in my 30s and I was just like, it's not going to happen for me. I'm not going to meet this, you know... Prince Charming and then Nadim kind of sauntered into my landscape and it was at um, a friend's restaurant and I was giving a talk and he was introduced to me and I remember at that moment I was just getting over having my heart broken by someone horrid and uh, and I wasn't really looking for anything and uh I arranged to meet up with two friends who I hadn't seen for, for a year who were a married couple. And um, they were there and Nadine was introduced to me and he just refused to leave. And when he finally did leave, I remember my friend's husband saying to me, you're going to end up married to that guy. And I was like, what what utter nonsense. I'm still in love with this other guy. I'm still hung up on this horrible guy who's broken my heart. And I didn't even think anything of it. Um, and Nadim at that time with his brothers had set up a tea company, Lalani & Co. And they were, they were working with restaurants to do tea tasting menus, working with chefs, um, beautiful, um, you know, tea from all over the world, from small gardens, some really small that only produce 10 kilograms a year. So really rare tea, like beautiful. And um, and so we then connected because at that time I was doing pop-ups and one day I want, needed matcha and I knew I could get matcha from him and, and we kind of connected and kept talking. And then this sort of game started and it was like a game of chase in a way, you know, and we were kind of trying to flirt and seduce each other but remain out of reach you know so it was like this kind of grand seduction and he had these wonderful silken manners and I'd never known a boy like him really old-fashioned manners and I found that so incredibly charming and he really listened to me when I talked and was really interested in in what I did and again that was so new to me and um and so we just we just kept playing this kind of you know romantic walks through London, phone calls through the night till when the sun came up in the morning and, you know, love letters and all sorts of things. But, you know, it ha he was just out of my grasp. And then Giacconi was about a year away from happening and I was recipe testing at my flat and I was doing puddings. And he surprised me with a, uh, an announced visit. And there sort of laid out like bait were all these puddings that I'd been making and finally found his Achilles heel, which was sugar. And um, I remember him eating this souffle I'd made. And that was it. It was that was all it took. He fell 
on the sofa and fell for me and it was through sugar that we connected the sweetness of the sweetness of life and I've never known anyone who enjoys my puddings like Nadim does they just take him to another level like and this this is the whole thing about you know lavishing that time desserts are such a luxury because they take time you know uh, they, there are no, I mean, unless you make a microwave mug cake, which are very good, by the way, but they do take time to make. And if and yet they're so fleeting, you know, you eat them so quickly. But to lavish that time and effort to make someone a pudding is my love language, definitely for my husband. Thanks for listening. Do pop over to Substack for some extra bites of Ravinda, reading a little bit from one of the essays in the book. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I'll see you next